You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Brett Holman, the author of The Next War in the Air, Britain's Fear of the Bomber, 1908-1941, and also the author of an upcoming book, Home Fires Burning, Emotion Spectacle in Britain's First War from the Air. Dr. Holman, how's it going today? Oh, it's great. Um, it's very nice to be joining you uh, here from the other side of the world in Australia, um, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for, for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. So the growth and impact of aviation during the First World War is, is well known. It's sort of, you know, part of the, the whole story. And part of that story was also the advent of aerial bombardment. Now, the bombing raids that were launched were not just aimed at military targets close to the fighting, but also included the bombing of military and civilian targets away from the front. Setting aside kind of the technological advancements or, or military impact of these raids, could you talk a little bit about the mental impact that these raids had on people who at any other previous time in history would have been far outside the, the danger zone or the danger area during a conflict? Yeah, this, this is, I think, a very, very uh, interesting aspect of this war from the air. Lots of, lots of I mean, to be clear, civilians are always affected by war. They've always been victims of war. But as you say, that's that's really, in the past, in the previous, before the 20th century, this was much more uh, likely if you were close to the, the front lines. Um, sometimes there were things like shore bombardments of port cities and that sort of thing, where people, uh, civilians who were supposedly safe, far from, far from the, the war fighting, were suddenly thrust into the action. But generally, People in the home front could feel safe and secure that their armies were off fighting somewhere else and they would not be affected. And so it was a real mental shift for them to adjust to this idea of I may be dozens or hundreds of miles away um, from the armies, but I'm now in danger and I have to think uh, like I'm in danger. So this was a huge mental uh, readjustment for many people. Again, that said, it was different for different countries. I think Britain, which is a country that I study particularly, it was especially a difficult transition because they were an island nation, still are an island nation. Uh, they traditionally had this the, the English Channel between them and their prospective enemies. And of course, they had the Royal Navy to protect them, you know, those wooden, wooden walls 
and later iron walls to prevent any enemies from landing, which you know didn't always work, but it worked pretty much, you know, certainly throughout the 19th century. There was definitely complacency in in Britain about the threat from overseas. But again, as always, this gets complicated because in Britain, there'd been this whole genre of invasion literature before the First World War, where they imagined German armies um, usually in landing and invading in a surprise attack, somehow having taken out, taken out the Royal Navy and landing under secret uh, in dark or something like that and, and taking over London. And, and that would be the end of the British Empire because, you know, they hadn't invested heavily enough in their army or some other some other um, aspect of defence. So there were concerns. So even though, so there's this sort of, this strange sort of double thing of uh, complacency and anxiety, both when uh, worked sort of hand in hand um, before the First World War. So people had this sort of complex idea of, um, you know, yeah, we're safe, but maybe we're not so safe as we think. And then the aeroplane comes along and the airship, of course. This immediately subverts the Royal Navy because it can just fly right over the English Channel and all those battleships and attack the home front directly. In theory, of course, the technology is not quite there to begin with uh, to do this um, accurately or in strength, but it's just the mere possibility um, increases the anxieties. Um, And so there's all this agitation before the First World War in Britain. You know, what should we do? How do we defend against this? We need our own air force. We need some weapons to defend against them. And um, so people start talking about this, but it's all couched in in this terms of national strength. Britain is the world's, we need, we need to remember, it was the world's leading superpower by some, some measures. It needed to be up there uh, in the first rank of nations fighting in the air. It needed to be not just for defensive purposes, but also for offensive purposes. So it needed to be able to take the fight to the enemy. So there's, again, this this double defensiveness, offensiveness, it's all there in the thinking. How far this affected people on the street, how far people, you know, the ordinary person cared about all this is hard hard to tell. There were things like, which fascinate me, the the phantom airship panics before the First World War, where people imagined that they saw... Uh, German zeppelins flying over uh, in the night sky over England, which of course were not there. We may imagine they might have been more likely to be, fly- you know, aliens in flying saucers than than um, actual German airships. But people did think this, and it was all over the press. And so there was a lot of discussion about uh, those sneaky Germans coming over and preparing for the next war um, by by scouting out uh, English skies. Um, under cover of night in peacetime. So again, there's this anxiety that's bubbling up. Uh, And then you get to the war itself. At first, people, again, are not really very concerned about it, but it's when the sort of front lines start start to harden in France on the Western Front. You get uh, the, the war of movement ends, Paris is saved, but the Germans are firmly lodged in in Eastern France and Belgium. The idea sort of arises, well, the, the Germans are not going to sort of rest on their, their laurels. They're going to strike um, somewhere and they want to strike at Britain because Britain has become their primary enemy. And so they're going to use their Zeppelins to fight over this, fly over the Channel and bomb London. And so it was widely assumed that this would happen. The question was, what effect would it have? People, people were sort of told by the government that they had to prepare for this. Um, they were told that... Um, 
well, the, the London streetlights were dimmed and external lighting was sort of um, uh, lowered to make it less easy for um, uh, Zeppelins to find it. By later standards of the blackout in World War II, this was much less dramatic change, but it still would have been noticeable. People were, other than that, there was nothing like the civil defence measures of the 1930s and the 1940s. People were, were sort of told to look out for themselves and just uh, follow, follow the general directions of the police and that sort of thing. There were anxieties. Again, there are anxieties, but not really, I would not, and some fear. I would not say there was sort of panic or anything like that. People not that alarmed. But what sort of changed things was the sort of string of, of German atrocities in the, in the 1914 and 1915, the, um, the slaughter of Belgian civilians, the use of gas, the sinking of the Lusitania. This all became part of this sort of narrative of uh, the German war against civilization, German barbarism, and the Zeppelin attacks on civilians fitted right into that. So people became more angry than scared. Um, there was more hate, I think, in the early in the early days, and certainly the press uh, sort of amped that up and sort of talking about uh, the correct response uh, against these early attacks, which after all were not very heavy. They only killed. I mean, all all deaths, of course, were regrettable, but they only killed a handful of civilians. The press played these up as as you know pathetic victims of of the Kaiser's hatred against England. But um, the actual damage was was minimal, and so a lot of it was uh, about the press connecting it as, as part of this narrative of, of poison gas and and barbarism, uh, and using using those attacks to um, drive hatred against the Germans. I'm stuck with the mental image of of a, of a, of a Britain in, in you know the pre-war years, like looking up and thinking they see a Zeppelin, having probably no real clue exactly what a Zeppelin would look like at night uh, flying above them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, many of these people had never seen anything flying, you know, aircraft or even, you know, there were a few small airships in Britain, but most people who sort of saw these things had not seen uh, anything like those uh, aircraft before, and so it was a lot of it was just what they imagined or what they saw in the press. It's what they told were told that airships would look like, and you know, usually it was night, and what they saw was a bright light, you know, sort of shining down, which they took to be a searchlight on the bottom of the airship, um, which you know was not actually a thing which airships carried very often or used very often because they were very heavy things and they didn't want to put the, give their position away. But, you know, this was this was sort of the idea that it got out and so this is what everyone started seeing. Oh, there's a bright light over on the horizon. That must be a, an airship. And so the press, you know, as you can imagine, had a field day with this. There were, there were um, newspapers who said, yes, it's the Germans definitely coming over. Who else could it be? Um, and there were other ones saying, um, oh, it's, it's actually the government or, or British inventors who are developing our own airships and testing them secretly at night. And then there were others who said, this is all you know, hysteria and, and, <laughs> and, and the press itself is to blame um, for sort of whipping up a frenzy about it, which is you know, sort of more or less what I believe um, to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of fits in with a lot of the, those invasion uh, scares and the spy panics as well. The the idea that there are German spies uh, embedded throughout London, um, ready to sort of strike at the, the day when the German army does invade, um, and so it was all part of this pattern of German hostility towards Britain and, and underhanded methods, um, these sort of sneaky methods um, to overcome British strength because they're so jealous of Britain. 
Um, so it all fits into that picture, um, mental picture that a lot of people sort of subscribe to uh, before the, even before the First World War. And so when we're when we're talking about the war itself and we're talking about about the air raids that occurred, so what were some of the targets, say, say in Britain? And what are we looking at in terms of, you know, raid size, damage caused, those kind of quantitative metrics, I guess? Yeah, well, there are um, in theory, you know, the, the Germans always, uh, you know, claimed that they were attacking fortified positions. So according to the um, the, the Hague uh, conventions before the war, the only sort of permissible attack against cities were, were if they were from the air. Uh, it was a bit ambiguous, but it was if they were fortified positions, meaning, you know, they were fortress cities that had guns that were, cap- they were capable of defending themselves. And so they would, so the Zeppelin commanders would always say, oh, they'd been fired upon by anti-aircraft guns, even when British records show that there were no guns in the area. Um, it was a standard thing to say, yeah, uh, we attacked a legitimate target. They did, they did attack, uh, the most heavily bombed target was London, obviously, but also Hull, um, which is up on the, the northeast coast of the North Sea, um, partly because it was, uh, you know, a, a fairly important though minor port, a fishing port, really, um, some shipbuilding, I think. Um, but it was also, it was just, its location meant it was easy to find. It was on the coast. It was a short, short, relatively short distance. So the, the Zeppelins could fly in and fly out without exposing themselves to too much risk. Um, uh, it was bombed quite heavily as well. Uh, and then later in the war, the, um, when the aeroplanes started bombing, the Gothas, they bombed the uh, southeast corner Kent, Ramsgate and Dover and places like that fairly heavily as well as London. So those were the the areas which were bombed the heaviest. Uh, The Zeppelins did penetrate uh, as far north as Edinburgh and they did attempt to raid the Midlands, um, Manchester and Birmingham, which were heavy centres of industry. Um, They didn't have much luck um, getting to those targets because it was just the, the navigational problem was just too hard and the weather often interfered. Um, those, but those were the, also some of the biggest raids, Zeppelin raids. Normally, the raids were carried out by, you know, one, two, three Zeppelins. They could be up to five or six. It were about the biggest, maybe a bit more. They often had difficulties coordinating those attacks because the Zeppelins would not fly in a, in a sort of fleet formation. Uh, they might start out together, but they usually took their own routes um, to the targets. The communications in the air between the airships were not uh, was not very useful. It was ended up all ended up being a bit random. You know, three three airships might head out for London. Uh, one would end up uh, hitting London. One would you know, reach Norfolk. Another one would turn back. So it was they had a great difficulty in concentrating their forces uh, on any given target. Um, as to what they wanted to achieve, the basic idea was that they wanted to basically frighten the British people out of the war. They wanted to they wanted to cause terror. Uh, they wanted to cause fear. They wanted the British people themselves to say, "Well, this isn't worth fighting." They wanted to strike back for the um, the blockade, the British blockade of Germany, the naval blockade, which was at times caused serious privations in in Germany in terms of food. But sometimes the Germans said that this was a this a particular raid was a reprisal for an Allied air raid on a German city. Um, so they sort of sometimes tried to justify it that way. But really, the idea was they wanted to cause emotional 
effects in Britain. And the British, sorry, the German press would sort of fondly describe the, 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 the terrifying effects that it had in London and elsewhere, these raids, you know, with people, the city in flames and, and masses of people panicking. And this was based on, sometimes based on neutral uh, journalists um, and opinion, but it was vastly exaggerated. There was nothing like what they were describing. There was isolated incidents of panic and terror and that sort of thing, isolated incidents of high casualties, but generally the Zeppelins in particular uh, did very little um, damage. It was really a bit disappointing for the Germans that they spent all this effort sending the Zeppelins over um, to so little effect, apparently, although to be fair, it was hard for them to tell because of the British. The British government did clamp down on the reporting of uh, the raids uh, in the British press. So after the very first raid on London, they said they prohibited British newspapers from publishing details of the raids uh, in terms of casualties and damage and even the locations. So it was hard for the Germans to actually get accurate information as to what their airships were doing. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it's kind of hard for, for the Germans to, to determine the effects of what they're doing. But then after the war was over, kind of how did sort of air power theorists and planners view the events of the First World War? You know, strategic bombing as a concept is a major part of planning during the interwar years. And so how did strategic bombing enthusiasts and, and critics view the events of the First World War? How did they kind of analyze those in their own views? Yeah, uh, this is a, a really important topic because um, it does have consequences for um, not, only the, not only the interwar period, but the Second World War as well. So, yeah, the analysts did pay attention to what had happened in the, in the First World War because obviously that was the only major example, the only major evidence they had to draw upon. 
but equally they argued that it was limited. So, you know, the forces were limited, uh, the number of aircraft were limited, the technology was limited. And this is the thing about aviation, particularly in this period, is it was the technological growth was, you know, staggering. Um, things were always getting better, faster, more pay- powerful, uh, longer ranges. Everything was happening, was pointing in the direction of more more destructive capabilities in the future. And so this is what they, they did was they took that those examples of the First World War and they sort of quite naively extrapola- extrapolated um, to the to the present day, the 1920s and 30s, and into the future um, and say, yeah, okay, that was however bad that was. And some, and they'd also take, they'd take the, the, the um, isolated examples, the worst cases, and sort of use that to extrapolate from. So, you know, there were cases during the um, air raids in Britain where one bomb levelled an entire, an entire um, t- street uh, in London, uh, Warrington Crescent, um, and so you find people writing about this in the interwar period and they'd have maps of the street and showing, you know, how many of their streets, the, the houses that were, were destroyed, the houses that were damaged. And they'd say, well, imagine this was just one bomb did this. Imagine a whole fleet of, you know, a thousand aircraft dropping 10 of these bombs. Imagine what it will do to a city uh, and day after day, not just at, at, at random sort of intervals. So, you know, they had this made for a fairly persuasive picture um, because it was based on, you know, some reality and, and sort of the evidence of what everyone can see through the press and through newsreels and, and going to air shows and things is that, you know, aviation was, was, was uh, going ahead in leaps and bounds. And so, of course, in the future, of course, it's going to be more powerful um, and more uh, destructive. And so this idea came about in the 19, by the 1930s of the knockout blow from the air that this would um, be irresistible, um, this first strike, <clears throat> or not even just the first strike, but even just a few weeks of bombing, and there'll be no way that any nation would be able to withstand that and, um, unless they were able to do even worse uh, to the enemy because this was one of the other me- uh, lessons that was drawn from the First World War which was that air defence was basically um, ineffective. Uh, the Zepp, and this this is this is based. This was an, a, a fallacious um, inference, I would say. The Zeppelins had, in fact, been defeated by um, by Britain's air defences. They'd worked out how to shoot them down fairly regularly by uh, the end of 1916. But it was the Gothers, which um, the aeroplane bombers, which threw the uh, the British air defences for a loop, uh, so to speak, uh, in 1917 and 1918. Uh, they launched some spectacular daylight raids uh, over London, which were um, which everyone could see were were not intercepted by the the British air defenders and. You know, they only lost very small numbers of aircraft to the defences, including which did include anti-aircraft guns. Um, and so these these raids were exceptionally damaging, more damaging than the Zeppelin raids. And so the idea came about that that you know the aeroplane was the 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 raider of the future, which was correct. You know, the airship had had its day by 19, 1917, but that, that there was no way for aircraft, for fighter aircraft to effectively defend against uh, aeroplane bombers. They were just too fast. The sky was too big. There'd be too many of them. And they, yeah, they'd shoot down some, but this would have very little effect against a determined 
enemy and they'd always be able to press home the attack and drop their bombs and lay, which might include poison gas, of course. Uh, and so this would lay waste to entire city and um, it was rather pointless. But in fact, the British, the British underestimated the effectiveness of their air defences. Um, some, some, some elements of the Royal Air Force did understand that it was effective and um, that's why they actually uh, did, did maintain that air defence structure through, through to 1940, which is a good thing. But you know, the politicians and um, the air ministry generally and the sort of all the pundits in the press sort of said, no, you know, this, the Gothas in 1917 proves that we can't, you know, we can't fight against this. So, you know, we need to have bombers of our own to um, take the war to Germany or whoever and beat them at that game rather than sitting there and take it. So, yeah, it was complicated. The, the legacy of the First World War was misinterpreted, um, I argue, and it kind of makes sense when you see it from the point of view of the 1930s, but um, they sort of um, worked themselves into a... Um, they've kind of, they kind of scared themselves for no reason, um, the people who were sort of afraid of the, the bomber in the 1930s. It was a vastly exaggerated threat. As terrible as it was, of course, the you know the the, the the strategic bombing campaigns of the 1940s, they never came uh, close to knocking Britain out of the war um, in the way that was envisaged uh, in the 1930s. On the other side of the post-war equation, we have kind of the civilian view of strategic bombing. You know, did memories of the bombing campaigns of the First World War play a role in the concerns about the dangers posed? You know, by attacks in the next war. Uh, whenever that might occur? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that I've looked at. Um, I need to look at it more. But um, yeah, I mean, when you think about people who are living in London in 1935, 1940, many, many, many of those, millions of those would have been alive in 1917 and would have experienced the air raids then. And so it's a really interesting question as to how their own memories and their own experiences affected how they prepared, you know, physically and mentally for this next war. Um, and we do have we do have some evidence um, in the form of there's in 19, in 1935 there was uh, one of the um, the Rothermere newspapers started up a campaign called the, the National League of Airmen, which was designed to um, pressure the government into expanding the Air Force. Um, so and part of this was through uh, exaggerating this or playing on this fear of the bomber and saying we need a big air force so that we won't be vulnerable to this but one of the aspects that they one of the one of the strategies they tried to do was to um, get readers um, to write in with their memories and experiences of the first world war and to reflect upon what this meant for the defense of britain the air defense of britain today um, and so they i've sort of gone through these letters and collected try to get a little database of them and there's about a hundred of them, I think, across a few weeks. And so people, clearly these people who are writing in were very affected by their memories and what had happened to them. There were some terrible stories um, of, you know, my daughter, you know, she was in a house that was hit by a bomb. She has never been able to, to work or leave the house since then. My, you know, grandmother died of shock after the raid in 1918. I fear for the next the next generation who have to go through this again. We can I, I still have nightmares about it. I don't want to put my children through this again. So, you know, there are people who are really affected by it. 
Um, and these some of these stories I have to chase up because it's interesting because it gives it gives a sort of uh, longitudinal study of the effects of the air raids. If you look at the immediate casualty lists of you know people who were killed and wounded at the time, you know that's one one measure of their of their damage. Um, but the emotional effects can last for a, for for many many decades, and were not obviously obviously were not really reported at the time. And so it gives an interesting insight into those emotional after effects. On the other hand, of course, it's not exactly a scientific sample. It's um, it's selected. Uh, these people are self-selecting. They're exaggerating, perhaps, to sort of get their um, their letters noticed by the by the press. And there was also there was also a prize for the best letter in uh, in each in each issue. Then they were being selected by the editors, of course, who who were selecting the most um, interesting or um, sort of out there letters. And of course, it's for a political campaign um, to pressure the government. So it's all propaganda. So. I want to try. I do want to try and look at these closely and sort of see if I can verify some of the some of the details of them. And they often did include uh, full names and addresses, um, so I can so I can do that. But it's taken sort of um, as it stands. It was in itself. It's an interesting argument to say that was presented at this time in 1935 to say these these uh, air raids. People do remember them. They still remember them. Um, it affects how we're thinking, how we need to think about the next war um, because it's going to be so much worse, but it was bad enough as it was. So people did have memories, and that's something that I'm, I'm really interested in following up on. Even somebody with the best of intentions writing 17 years later, you know, memories become different uh, over that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole field of sort of oral history which um, takes a lot of care into um, uh, looking at how people reconstruct their memories after the event to sort of in light of their their um, changing uh, changing beliefs, their changing understanding of what had happened, their later experiences. You know, the meaning that something had at one point in your life is different to the meaning it had has later in your life. And so, you know, yeah, as you say, these, these people are not necessarily trying to pull one over anyone, but how they react to what had happened to them in 1917, sorry, how they react to it in 1935 is going to be different to how they react to it in 1917. And that in itself is is a really fascinating topic. And so it's something I'll be getting up to in the, in the last chapter of my book, I expect, um, which seems a long way off from now. Speaking of books... You know, uh, I know you're continuing to do research on, on some of these topics. So what is the, the book that you're working on and, and what are you kind of, you know, actively researching right now? Yeah. So thank you for asking. Um, so, yeah, so my, so my current book that I'm project that I'm working on is on the First World War Air Raids. Um, the kind of way I'm looking at it is there have been a lot of books that have been written about it, uh, these air raids, um, the Zeppelins and the Gothers, uh, and a lot of excellent books. What I'm interested in is not so much the the details of what happened, but the way people uh, sort of experienced them and the way they did feel about them. So, sort of emotions and spectacle, because I argue these had a it's it's part as we as a, as I explained just before that the the raids themselves generally had little physical effect, but it's the emotional experiential effects that I think were key to understanding um, their impact because they were the effects of these raids were much bigger than just the the, the bomb damage itself 
And so I'm still in the sort of early days of the project, although sometimes it doesn't seem like it. But currently I'm looking at um, the first raids um, on London in 1915 and the way that people responded to these by turning against the what they saw as the enemy within. So after the first raid, there were riots in the east end of London against people with of German extraction because um, there was a, a German community in London um, which had been there for... Um, in, you know, it had been there for many years, um, long, well established. But of course, when the war came along, these beca- these people were in a precarious position. Their loyalties were doubted, um, even though some of them, had, you know, didn't even speak German. Um, you know, were third generation or something like that. So any German shops were sort of uh, often targeted, uh, butchers and um, bakers and all that sort of thing. So they were targeted by by rowdy crowds who sort of wanted some sort of payback. Uh, for what had happened, these raids. So these. So that sounds pretty terrible. Uh, was terrible, but it was actually a, a fairly minor sequel to what had happened a few weeks earlier, when the Lusitania had been sunk by a U-boat off Ireland, and the riots there were much. After that, were much more extensive. Again, this this connects with the idea of of, of anger and hatred towards the Germans um, for what they felt to be um, what was felt to be. Uh, a, a sort of frightful was the word that was used way of wa- waging war, not honourable at all, not decent, which, you know, was contrasted with the supposed British way of fighting. And so there was a pattern of these riots early on in, you know, in uh, the raids when other towns were attacked like South End and Hull, there were riots as well. And it was, again, it was, it was an emotional response you know, partly some way of, of releasing these emotions that were, you know, this feeling we went, we talked about earlier before, you know, we're now under attack. There's nothing we can do to strike back against the Zeppelins, but here is something we can strike back against, even if it's not actually an enemy. But there was also, as I said earlier, there was this discourse of German spies, you know, riddling British society, German spies and saboteurs. And there were stories about um, that signals were being flashed to um, the Zeppelins. So, you know, that they were being guided into their targets by um, people on the ground. Uh, In the first raids on Norfolk uh, in January 1915, there were stories of a a motor car zooming through the, the back uh, you know, the back roads of, of the countryside with its headlights on, flashing a signal um, to the Zeppelin that came in and, and dropped its bombs there in the first raid. And so there were all these fears and paranoias about the German enemy within, um, which was stoked up by the press, um, some elements of the press beforehand, which said, you know, we need to worry, we need to be concerned about these people. They're a danger to us. When the raid comes, they're going to rise up and um, attack um, you know, our public buildings, um, blow up bridges, attack communications, all that sort of thing. And so I'm trying to, so this is the topic that I'm working on at the moment, these riots and the sort of fears um, that sort of fed into them and resulted from them. So, yeah, I'm kind of having fun unpacking all of that and going through with the newspapers at the time and trying to work out what evidence I have. There's diaries and memoirs and things which also help and, and government reports. Uh, on, on some of this violence so yeah so it's it's um a lot of fun uh, it sounds very interesting uh, i can't wait to check it out at some far future date <laughs> yes far future 
a couple of, a couple of years I think um, off, but um, yeah, it's still it's as I said, yeah, 1915. So I've still got you know a few more years of the war to get through. That's how, that's how it goes. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us here tonight and uh, for for uh, you know talking about these these really interesting topics. No, oh, thanks for having me, Wesley. It's been great. Thank you.